Welcome back to another episode of the SarahCast, Conversations in Social-Emotional Learning. This year has been difficult. We are experiencing a global pandemic, an election, which by the time this airs will have already happened, and a racial reckoning that has been referred to as the new civil rights movement. Earlier this fall, the Allstate Foundation conducted a survey of teenagers and found that teens indicated both COVID-19 and racism as their biggest worries going into a new school year. Conversations about racism have escalated in education this year, prompting educators to evaluate their curricula, explore anti-racism teaching practices, and dive deeper into educational equity. All long overdue. The relationship between equity and SEL has been a controversial topic historically. It's a criticism I hear often about SEL, that it's an attempt to favor certain behaviors over others. I would hope that anyone who is genuinely engaged in SEL understands that our social emotional experience informs our behaviors. And SEL helps students build an awareness of themselves and those around them. But that's not always the case. And that's why I'm so excited for today's conversation with educator Christy Ann Opaleski. Christy Ann has been an advocate for SEL for a long time, both in the classroom where she currently teaches high school English and as a mentor to other teachers. She learned firsthand how SEL can be used to both promote equity and perpetuate inequity. In a recent TED-Ed talk, she shared how her classroom practices to build relationships with students instill a sense of accountability, and that created an environment where students felt they were being treated differently. She learned about the difference between equality and equity, and she shifted her SEL practices to create a more equitable classroom environment. Christiane currently teaches at Jackson Public Schools in New Jersey. She has over 20 years of teaching experience and shares a lot of actionable and valuable advice in today's episode. If you do implement any of the ideas you learned today, we would love to hear how it goes in your classroom. Our DMs are open on Instagram at move underscore this world. This afternoon, I'm joined by Christy Ann Opaleski, who currently is a social-emotional learning coach and coordinator at Jackson School District in New Jersey, as well as an educational consultant, children's book author, TED Talk speaker, among many other things. Um, so I'll let Christy share a little bit more about herself and her journey within education. Yes. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I appreciate it. I uh, was really excited for this opportunity to talk about SEL. It's like my passion. It's the thing that kind of gets me up in the morning and gets me in the classroom and re-energizes me. Uh, my journey is pretty kind of basic. I started out just as, I shouldn't say just, but <laughs> as an English teacher, I've been teaching the going into my 20th year of teaching this year. And uh, thank you. Um, I decided, you know, after being in the classroom for a while, that as much as I liked teaching English to high school, I kind of opened myself up. I got my master's. I started teaching at the college level, the composition classes. I really enjoyed that. Um, I liked the college atmosphere. So I got involved with the New Jersey Department of Education for SPAC, which is the uh, state program approval committee. So it's looking at the education programs of the colleges in New Jersey and how they serve like pre-service teachers. Um, because I, I'm really 
I'm really kind of concerned right now about the lack of, of people going into the education major. And I really do think that a shortage could be coming our way within the next decade or so. And also teachers who come out who are not prepared for the classroom, not that they're not prepared with strategy, but the actual reality of being in the classroom and being with students with such diverse needs, uh, trauma, and just things that they don't necessarily focus on at the college level. So I kind of got involved with that, which then led me into teacher leadership, <laughs> which was another uh, Department of Education initiative. And I really like being a teacher leader where I work with new teachers, master teachers. I do uh, professional development for teachers in my district and now outside my district, focusing on social emotional learning, teaching the whole child. Um, and that got me into, well, being that I wanted to make sure I had the right credentials and that I had all the research because everything is research-based uh, in education, as you know. Uh, and I got a certificate through the um, Rutgers and the St. Elizabeth program, the College of St. Elizabeth and SEL leadership. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, and I'm in a hybrid role. So I still teach. So half the day I'm in the classroom as a high school English teacher. I teach mostly juniors and seniors. Last year I had freshmen, which was challenging, <laughs> but I overcame it. And um, the other half I work with teachers. I coach them. I do presentations for administration, for teachers. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I get to go into their classrooms. I can model a lesson or they come into mine and they can see how something's being done. And then we just kind of meet and it's a uh, more of a liaison. I'm not an evaluator by any means. It's more of like, let's what, you know, what are best practices? What do you need in your classroom and how can I help? It's more of just, I'm an extra set of hands to kind of dive in with the teacher so they feel more comfortable with some of the initiatives and what's happening in American classrooms today. And you just did a TED Talk. Congratulations. Tell, tell us a little bit about its focus. Uh, it was a TED-Ed talk and it was on equity. Um, and it was basically my personal story about how I realized that in the classroom, I always thought that, you know, kids are kids are kids. And that, you know, you just see them as teenagers. But then I realized I was kind of being colorblind, that I wasn't uh, seeing kids for all that they could be. I was kind of putting them in their own box. In my own way, I thought I wasn't stereotyping them, but I actually was. Um, and that got me into a lot more research with SEL and learning how to cultivate that connection with students and that rapport about their culture and their heritage and their traditions and their beliefs and how to create a safe space for them in the classroom to share those things in an educational setting where it kind of ties to the curriculum. And as an English teacher, it's pretty natural. I have to say, I do have the easiest discipline <laughs> um, as we're reading a lot of stories about characters and conflicts. It's a little harder sometimes in math. <laughs> My math teachers are always like, we don't do that. We deal with numbers. I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> like, I can still help you with that. It's okay. <laughs> so that was the, the focus of the TED-Ed talk was about equity and how we can really uh, teach, focus on teaching the whole child, not teaching, like I teach English or I teach math. It's no, I teach students English or math and putting the individual uh, student in, in front of us, making them more of uh, well-developed, well-rounded, as opposed to, you know, just focusing on the content. Well, we'll speak more about your TED Talk in a minute, but before we drop into this conversation, speaking of creating safe and supportive and vulnerable learning environments, let's just take a moment to center ourselves and ground ourselves. Mm. Um, we'll use an exercise that we do uh, in the Move This World program. So let's go ahead and uh, if we're comfortable, just take a moment, close our eyes, center ourselves with our feet on the ground beneath us, roll our shoulders back. 
and identify how we're feeling in this moment. And when we've identified how we're feeling in this moment, let's go ahead and attach a sound and a facial expression to accompany that feeling. And when we're ready, we'll open our eyes. And what we'll do is we'll just each say how we're feeling and we'll mimic that sound back to one another. So I'll go first, just follow along. I'm feeling curious. So now we'll do that together. Okay. Okay. Curious. Curious. Okay. I like that. That's fun. <laughs> how, are, how are you feeling, Christy? I am feeling woo, woo, excited. <laughs> so we'll do that together. Sure. Woo, woo, excited. Cool. So that's an opportunity for me to share with you. I'm feeling curious for me to be aware that you're feeling excited and we can use that information to shape how we interact with one another and in the conversation that we have. Um, so now go, kind of going back to your TED Talk, um, tell us a little bit more about the role that social emotional learning plays in creating a foundation for equity. You say in your TED Talk that equity is not equality. Can you first expand on that and then tell us about how social emotional learning plays into that? Sure. Uh, I always thought that uh, equity and equality were synonyms for each other. I never really realized the nuances and uh, the, the complexity of the word equity. Um, and the example I gave in the TED Talk, and that was true story that happened to me in the classroom, is about Band-Aids. If you give everyone a Band-Aid, that's equal. But if someone you know has a bloody nose, someone has a deep gash, and someone has a paper cut, by giving them a Band-Aid, I gave them the same tool but I didn't help them. <laughs> the Band-Aid would probably only help the person with you know, a paper cut, even if they needed that. It doesn't help the other two people. So equity is more about meeting the student where they're at and giving them what they need to be successful. Uh, and that's kind of been what I've been, how I tie it to social emotional learning is that uh, I, the, the, main analogy that I like to use is that SEL is the plate. You know, we have all of these, you know, things, food groups that go on the, you know, the, the, the plate that is the student, their home life, their community life, their extracurriculars, their, uh, you know, their, their academics, their identity, all of these things are on the plate. But if you don't have a solid foundation, if they don't feel like they belong, if they don't feel safe, if they're hungry, okay, if they're angry, that it doesn't matter all the other facets that are on the plate, it's just going to fall apart. You need right. that solid foundation. So that's how, you know, I, I view social emotional learning is it's the whole child. It's the whole plate. And without that, you can't teach them math. You can't teach them, you know, how to read and analyze properly if they don't have those basic needs and that sense of security felt in a classroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even, you know, we talk about this all of all of the time that we all carry these emotional backpacks. Oh, yeah. And if we don't provide a space and a structure for us to unpack our emotional backpacks, mm -hmm. those backpacks just get heavier and heavier and then implode. And so by you know, taking the time to say, how are you feeling? Can we just name that and use that information as we move through our day that can help us be more trauma-informed? Absolutely. Um, what are some of the social emotional learning practices that teachers or schools can easily implement that build equity? 
The three things that I always mention, and it's CASEL, which is the gold standard, I'm sure you know, (laughs) for uh, social emotional learning, are their three signature uh, plays from their playbook, which is basically the idea of a welcoming ritual, which is kind of what you just did with the Move This World exercise. What is uh, your ritual with your students? Uh, Mine is emoji magnets when I'm in person with them. I got them off Amazon cheap. When the kids come in, there's an arrow on the board. It says, where are you at? Which kills me as an English teacher. (laughs) But I do it anyway for the greater good. Um, and they put their magnets up there, like where they're, where the, how they're feeling on the spectrum. And then I get like I take the temperature of the room. And I'm like, all right, we're all kind of like low vibing today. What's going on? You know, let's kind of do a breathing exercise, or let's stand up and energize. And I kind of start the class that way. Uh, some of my colleagues stand at the door and they just greet them by name. You know, they just talk to them over like, how was your game last night? Or, hey, you told me you were worried about that test last week. You know, how do you think you did? Uh, other teachers like, you know, coaches, I notice are really big on this. Do you like handshakes or fist bumps or they have like some, you know, special code <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. movement that they do with their students. But a welcoming ritual is basically just how do you start class every day as the teacher to to welcome students in to your room and kind of let them leave, you know, some of the, the emotions or things that had happened in the past at the door. The second is engaging the student. So any type of engagement strategy that you like to use, it could be um, the way you set up discussions, it could be station learning, uh, it could be using a debate format, small groups, turn and talk, but how do you get them engaged uh, individually and collectively in the content that you're trying trying to get across that day? And then the last is uh, optimistic closure. So ending the class on a positive note. And I know some days, and the kids agree, that it's not always the best class. (laughs) Maybe it was boring that day, or maybe there was a fire drill, or, you know, something crazy happened. But noticing something that positive that occurred, or, you know, setting the intention for the next day, like, hey, today was a little crazy, I was a little off, but tomorrow will be better because we'll be together and, you know, it'll, it'll, it's just going to be a solid day. So ending on a positive note, as opposed to, you know, when I first started teaching, the bell would ring and I'd be like, don't forget to do your homework. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I ended class. Yeah. So now it's more intentional and it's ending on a positive note. So they leave the room feeling a little more either calm or inspired or, you know, just kind of like, yeah, that wasn't the best, but you know what? She's right. Tomorrow's going to be better. Um, so those three practices are like the cornerstone of any, uh, you know, classroom and any PD that I do are just reminding. And it's what teachers are comfortable with. You know, and that's the other thing. It's got to be very individualized. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a fist pump, you know, like cool person. I don't know all the jives. So that does not work for me. <laughs> you know? So my emoji magnets are my thing. But finding your your thing, it, you know, definitely will, will help you with that. But those three um, ideas and practices will definitely build rapport in your class and have students feel that sense of caring and connection between you and the uh, them and then them and each other, which is important as well. You talk about what's your thing. What would you say to an educator who may be struggling to identify his or her thing, whether that's the morning welcome or the end of day or end of class, optimistic note, where, where should they begin? I usually tell them to be honest, like with the kids, you know, or with themselves, like, well, what is it that's stopping you? Are you afraid of looking silly in front of the kids? Are you afraid of sharing too much with them? Are, are you, uh, you know, scared of boundary issues? Like what exactly is your, your fear or your concern that you're, you know, that you feel like you're not being successful in that part? And sometimes we need to unpack that just the two of us, like me as a coach and them sitting there, you know, and they're like, well, you know, I'm not comfortable talking about myself. I'm like, well, what are you comfortable 
with people knowing about you? Could it be a hobby? You know, and you just could talk about like your welcoming ritual could just be like, hey, you know, I uh, was working on that. I crochet and I was working on a new stitch last night and I totally screwed it up. And in the end, it, it was pretty cool. Anybody else, you know, do something like a hobby, like something simple. It doesn't that's have right. to be like deep. Like, what is your deepest fear? Like, that's scary <laughs> to <Yeah>. share. <laughs> but doing something that's more that you're comfortable with, because again, as a teacher, you need to feel safe in the classroom too. You don't want to, you know, we want people to be vulnerable, but that is really uh, scary ground for everyone, for educators mm -hmm. and for students. So it, it could be just something simple, sharing yourself, sharing, you know, your enthusiasm, um, you know, what's something that you are, are comfortable doing that, you know, you know, will put kids at ease and yourself at ease. That's usually where we start. That is a great point of advice. We often find because this work is so inherently vulnerable that there can be resistance, especially from adults, not so much students who may be craving vulnerability and the opportunities to express themselves and be honest with one another. But adults who are really resistant to this idea of being, being vulnerable. So the suggestion of starting with what you are comfortable with and what you do want people to know is really helpful. Thank you. In terms of your own um, vulnerability, sharing your TED Talk, were there any moments of fear that you had uh, leading up to sharing that story around how you realized or came to that aha moment of you were treating your students um, fairly or equally, but not equitably? Yes. Uh, it was, I, you know, I had to deal with the emotions of of like shame and guilt and fear and then kind of recognizing not like I wasn't who I thought I was in the classroom because I work really hard to connect with teens, you know, and with the smartphone and all of this social media, it's very difficult sometimes to keep up with them and what's going, you know, what's going on. So to acknowledge that I wasn't doing what I thought I was doing, <laughs> you know, was, was uh, a very disappointing for myself. And I did feel that deep sense of shame when I kind of got called out on it in front of the students. And then I just, that whole weekend, I really didn't know what to do with myself. I was just so kind of, you know, beside myself in thinking like, I, I, this isn't working and, and I, I, I want this to work and I want my students to know because I do deeply care about them as individuals, but obviously they didn't see that. And then that's a problem that they don't, aren't see, they're not connecting back with me or they're seeing me in a completely different light than I thought I was shedding on a situation. So being vulnerable um, is, is, is extremely difficult in a classroom in the beginning. But I think when you take those little baby steps and, you know, with me, it was uh, community building. I do a lot of community building and that's the, the big priority for uh, our district and any district that I've spoken to this year is going back in. You can't start with content. I don't care who you are. If you're teaching, you know, three-year-olds or if you're teaching 18-year-olds, you have to start off with the people and you have to bring them back into being in school with these restrictions of wearing a mask and social distancing, you know, and the idea of a, a being in a pandemic, knowing that these kids might have had a parent out of work, that they themselves maybe have, in my case, where a lot of my students had to work to pick up 
uh, hours because their parents got laid off um, or, you know, someone in their family who had COVID and knowing that's in your room and addressing it as opposed to just pushing it to the side because that's not the skill we're working on today. Really addressing like, hey, this is going to be, you know, new for everybody. This is the new normal, whether we like it or not, you know, and, and addressing that, uh, that fear or that concern um, and kind of putting yourself out there um, as a teacher first saying like, you know, this isn't exactly how I wanted to come back to school. I'm going to be honest sure. with you, but I'm, sure. I'm happy to see you and I'm happy to be here in the presence of people. And I'm going to do everything we can to make this a positive learning environment. So really, you know, being vulnerable with your own feelings is important. And again, it's where what you're comfortable with. Everyone has opinion on COVID. <laughs> Everyone has an opinion about school openings. I mean, look at any media outlet and it's all there. <laughs> no one's shy about it. And I think the kids knowing that teachers may just have that bit of uh, nervousness or anxiety or concern, again, makes you more human. And I think that's what we, we're missing out on in this age of technology and rapid growth, um, you know, where information is ubiquitous. It's at, you know, you can learn anything on, on your phone, but you can't learn how to be a human through the technology. You need people for that. You need that, uh, you know, uh, being in a room, being that sense of, of belonging, being in contact, not necessarily physically, but being in proximity, let's say, uh, of other people. Absolutely. So as a social emotional learning coach and coordinator at Jackson School District, what initiatives are you currently prioritizing? Uh, we are definitely prioritizing social emotional learning. <laughs> <laughs> that is a first. Uh, it's all about uh, when we, we're doing it for our particular district, we are doing uh, the teachers are in five days a week, full days. Um, the kids are in half days, alternating days where they're, you know, in class and then remote. So we're focusing on the idea of uh, community building and anything that you're doing in the classroom has to be where you are engaging with the student and they're engaging with each other. It is no more, you know, stand and deliver, no lectures. You want to show a video, make that homework, do a flipped classroom. Don't read with them in class unless you're only doing like a, a chunk of it. Like the don't, you know, read the whole passage, let's say, or the whole chapter, you know, connecting with them, mm -hmm. doing the lab together, you know, assign the reading at home. So doing some of the, the skill building that is, you know, required and needed in an academic area, but not necessarily they don't need each other or the teacher, that can be done at home and saving the, the community events and the ways of looking at things and doing real world applications to the classroom. So that's really the focus. So like the first two weeks of school in Jackson, um, one of my trainings is on what community building activities can you do? And I, I had to reinvent, not personally reinvent the wheel, but really go for ones where you're not doing team building because, you know, team building is awesome, but usually requires like ropes or props or right. touching. <laughs> I'm not allowed to do that. So, like, you know, finding a new bag of tricks and then selecting and then doing ones that are like easy, that are like low stakes, that like no one really has to be invested in. And then ones that you start to get a little deeper into, you know, like, you know, the emotional level or like doing a values activity. That's not something I would ever start with, but something simple as like a name chain or doing a six word memoir or something mm -hmm. simple you know, where they just get to know each other and uh, where the kids know each other's names. By the, the, the end of two weeks, definitely every kid should know the name of their class. 
and uh, and the teacher. They shouldn't be like, well, the kid in the back, I with the gray hair, with this dyed hair. That's I agree with him. It's like no, Michael. I agree with what Michael just said about, um, and it, it it does make a difference. You know, spending the time and um, there is resistance as you're talking about with the adults that they're like, but I have to get through my curriculum. <laughs> so, uh, they, they still We've have to see that. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, there's going to be state tests, and they have the the AP exam, or they have their SAT, and they need this information. And I'm like, again, if they don't feel safe, if they don't aren't motivated, they're not going to care about that stuff. You know, it's more important to build the rapport than build the content that when they're, they're ready, they will get, you'll get to the content and you'll get to the things that are most important. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the viewpoint you have to kind of, you know, change your worldview a little bit. Um, and you know, it takes time and everyone's on their own path and you you got to respect that, but just kind of reiterating that, just remember, right, <laughs> you're right. still kids, remember, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they will make it through, you know, they, yes. they'll, they'll, they'll be okay. One of my, um, favorite mentors, coaches, advisors has said to me, Sarah, you just have to remember you can't, you can't like kids will get through this. Kids are resilient. And, um, that was really important to me too, as a mother to hear Yeah, that you just can't, you won't, you won't mess it up that badly. Mm-hmm. So it's a good reminder when times are particularly challenging. I how agree. did your, how did your plans and priorities shift following school closures in the spring and heading into the school year? Was community building always the priority for Jackson school district? Was that always the focus in terms of social emotional learning? No, um, it wasn't always the focus. We're focusing on it now because we've been away from being a community. Um, Before, it was more looking at what we were already doing and building on that. Because if you try to, you know, start an initiative, you get initiative fatigue. There's like 18 things they outline, like there's central admins initiatives and there's building initiatives and there's department initiatives and you just get overwhelmed. So they really wanted to do more about connection. That was more of the initiative for the past two years. What do we do really well that builds connection um, within the classroom? And then it was turnkeying that. So we surveyed people. We had best practices. Some teachers allowed themselves to be videoed, um, which most people don't like, including me. But, <laughs> you know, um, but the idea of like putting yourself out there and seeing what kind of worked for you as a teacher, like, oh, I could do that. Or, oh, I already do that. And then maybe I could add this activity and it'll build it even more build it higher and stronger. So we started more with building connections and making sure that the kids felt comfortable and safe. And then now we're going to more to the larger community. So it was, it was more individualized and now we're going collective uh, because we've been out for you know so many months. That's more of the priority now. Sure. And you talk about your experience cultivating social emotional skills as a high school English teacher. Mm. How, from your vantage point, does social emotional learning differ at the elementary, middle and high school levels? Well, I definitely agree that elementary is, it's more natural. A lot of the the teachers are there because they absolutely care. They spend a ridiculous amount of their own money buying supplies and making these adorable manipulatives. And it's like, oh my goodness, like I could not do what you do. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's natural because they also have the same kids all day. I mean, yes, you get pulled for specials, but you're teaching them, you know, science, math, English, like all of that. Um, And there's a lot of programs out there. So the school districts have lots of options 
options for elementary. It starts to get dwindle a little bit when you get to middle school, and that's a squirrely age, which you definitely need some social emotional learning supports in place. Um, you know, morning meetings are very popular. You know, all the different programs that they have. Um, but once you get to high school, I realize. There are few and far between programs. I was so excited when I saw Move This World and Kathy, you know, told me about it. I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is for high school. Like, are you sure? <laughs> are you just saying it's for high school? It's really for middle school. So it only gets up to ninth grade. I was like, because, you know, what works with a 14-year-old does not work with an 18-year-old. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. you know, looking at the, the, at the high school, it is a little more organic, I think. And you, like, for me personally, it was my passion. So when I started really delving into it and I was like, why are there no research, uh, you know, briefs about this? Why is there not enough information out yeah. there? So that's what kind of led me to a program. And then I started to see what was out there. And I'm like, oh, there are programs now for high school. There are ways of implementing it where it also doesn't have to be standalone lessons. A lot of teachers at the high school level were just like, well, okay, here I am teaching quadratic equations. And now you want me to like do a yoga pose and see, right. <laughs> like that doesn't work. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> You know, yeah. so finding other ways to incorporate, um, you know, SEL into any classroom and the idea, and I always try to remind you, I remind my, my colleagues, like it's person to person, it's, it's human to human. It's not always teacher to student. Like just think of them as people <laughs> as opposed to your charge to get them to understand a particular concept. Um, and changing that paradigm has taken, you know, a few years and, you know, most people are on board and everyone agrees it's important. But again, when you get hired to do a job and at the high school, we, we are very content driven and we are very much so in our silos where we don't know what's going on in other departments. We're in elementary. They are so much more uh, aligned. They articulate like what's going on in kindergarten up to fifth grade. So like they kind of know what each year, you know, is what the focus is and what the skill is, whereas we're all different at the high school. Like we, you know, what freshman English looks like, you know, may have very similar aspects to it at senior English, but the, you know, the discussion topics may be a little more mature or what have you. And like, I didn't know before what was going on in phys ed or what was going on in world language. And I, you know, so like when we were sharing things, people were like, we do that in this building? Like, I didn't yeah. know that. Like, we have that program or, oh, I didn't know that. And how did we, how do we get involved in that? So it was more, again, uh, sharing and coming together as a faculty um, and spending time kind of looking at what we do right. And that's really my, my, my first piece of advice if I were to give one, if you're looking to start a social emotional learning program, is figuring what the strengths are of your building, of your staff, and going from there, as opposed to like, we need to work on X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, no, we do A, B, right? Let's let's focus mm -hmm. on A and B and build mm -hmm. to C. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to be working and spreading. That's great. And in particularly, in particular, at the secondary level, what would you say to secondary teachers who are considering SEL or thinking about SEL, where should they begin? Great question. <laughs> if, you, if you have someone in your building that you know is kind of like, what they what they used to call me was like hippy dippy. <laughs> I'm okay being called that or granola. I, I never uh -huh. got offended by those words. If you uh -huh. you know if you have someone who's a little more like open to being vulnerable, you know seek them out. Um, if you're not into you know meeting a colleague, if you just type in uh, SEL you know at high school level, you'll, it'll send you to Castle. Um, if you look at the Aspen Institute, Rand Institute, there's a lot of research. Um, Edtopia has lots of very accessible short articles because I know a lot of um, my my teacher friends are like, I don't, I don't want to read a four page research mm -hmm. article. Like I don't want to read uh, journals. I want, <laughs> I want actual, 
actionable steps. And I get that. I totally get that. So, you know, that's kind of how I saw myself is I did all of the research. Now, let me just give you the application and you can just, you know, what, what sticks take, what doesn't leave it. Like you're, mm-hmm. think of you, go, you know, like you're trying on clothes, in, in, you know, in a, in a, in a department store. It's like what fits you bring home with you. What doesn't you just leave and let somebody else deal with. <laughs> that's the way, you know, pick and choose what works for you in your classroom to be successful where you feel safe and comfortable and your students feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get confused by what is social emotional learning and what is not social emotional learning. What are some common misconceptions or misinterpretations that you often see? The most uh, one that I hear constantly is, I don't want to coddle them. That's not going to help them in the real world. <laughs> and I'm like, that's uh, yeah. true, but it's not about coddling them. And, you know, it's, it enables them. It makes them entitled. Oh, who, you know, no one cares about your feelings in the real world. I'm like, where, where do you live? Like, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. You know, but they, it's a very defensive move. Um, and that's the misconception is that SEL is we're just going to throw deadlines out the window. We're going to throw content out the window and we're just going to sit around and talk about our feelings all day. That is not SEL at all. Social emotional learning is just recognizing and acknowledging that there is a full person in front of you who has unlimited potential, but only if we tap into and seeing them as a social, you know, as an emotional, as a mental, as an academic person, mm-hmm. as opposed to just like a student in your room. And recognizing that all of those components and those compartments are important to get them to learn, to engage. Um, and not on an everyday level. Like, it's not like every day I ask my kids, like, you know, where are you at mentally today? Where are you at academically? I don't go through the, the litany of things, but I do focus on like, well, how, what, what is our overall kind of vibe today? I use the word vibe. I can say like, so what's going on today? Everybody seems a little off. You know, if you want to go with that and, and teachers all know that they walk into a room and it just feels so off. Like what's going on here, guys? Y'all seem not in a good place. Did I miss an assembly? Like what? Happened? <laughs> <laughs> what? You know, Cause the kids always know everything before we do, <laughs> you know, like yeah. if there's something happening in the building or in the town, they are alerted well before the faculty is. And I'm not blaming admin. They, the kids mm-hmm. are on their phones more, you know, in the passing mm-hmm. in the hallways or what have you. They, they naturally seem to have that curiosity where we're just focused on, on the classroom. Um, so I would definitely say the idea that you're coddling and that you're giving in to emotions too much, which I counter with, I don't see it as enabling. I see it as empowering, you know, and I talk about the name it's attainment, uh, you know, and that's a common strategy at elementary, but it's also applicable to high school is the kid comes in and they're angry or they're tired. Like, they're not going to work for you. So it's like, what can you do to, you know, make them feel a little bit more comfortable or kind of, you know, tell them like, do you see your behavior right now? Like, I'm not accusing, like what's going on here? You know, what, you know, are you, do you need a moment? How about you take a moment, go for a drink and then come back, take some deep breaths and come back, do a lap. And some of them are like, why? I'm like, oh, just get out for a minute. Like, just go out. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and they kind of are like, okay. And then they come back and they're better. You know, and they're kind of like, all right, you know, you honored the fact that you wreck it. First off, you were aware of it. And sometimes the kids aren't aware of it, like that's how they look um, or that they think they're fronting very well. Like, you don't know that I'm upset. And I'm like, I do. (laughs) And not not calling them out, but just saying, you seem a little off. Do you need a moment? And that's Mm -hmm. all you have to say. And usually sometimes they will. And this is more of a a complaint I hear from um, male teachers. And it's not a sexist thing that like if they say that to someone and then the kid comes pouring out with emotion 
at like my boyfriend just broke up with me or my girlfriend is mad at me and I don't know what to do. And I got practice. And then the teacher's like, <laughs> and I, I get that. Like we're not counselors, but just, you know, responding to them. Wow. That does sound like a lot. Um, thank you for sharing that with me. You know, can, do you want to go see your counselor about that? Or, or is that something you think you can kind of switch to the back burner? And can we focus on today's lesson? Because it's really important for the test. And I know you're concerned about your grades. And just giving them that moment of, again, honoring their feelings and honoring like that you see them as a human being, but Hey, we got a job to do. We're in, we're in science class right now. And, you know, we're going to work with Bunsen burners. You got to be on your game, you know, focusing that way. It relaxes the, the, the students as well as the teacher. Um, and you don't take on that counseling role. Uh, that is the, the number one thing that I think that a lot, or the second thing that uh, teachers feel is a misconception is that SEL is for counselors only. And that's, that's not the case. Um, and I understand that sometimes kids unload and you're not ready for it. And sometimes just saying that to them. I, I, you know, I appreciate your honesty. I don't know what to do with that information. How about you go see your counselor or, you know, how about like, and just giving them or giving them a resource, Um, you know, having a list of resources posted in your room for like, I have, you know, anything from like eating disorders to suicide hotline to like, I need my schedule changed. (laughs) It's literally like a laminated poster and kids come in, they're like, Oh, I didn't know I had to go to the attendance office if I had a note. I thought I went to the VP's office. So simple <laughs> things like that, you know, sure. it takes like the mystery away from it. Um, so, you know, kind of working where, where, again, meeting a teacher where they're at, not just the kids, like where yourself's at, like, what are you comfortable with? And that could be what you're comfortable with is just handing out the resource list and saying, um, I, you know, I think this is, I'm glad you shared this with me, uh, but let's get you some additional support. And you, you go from there. Mm-hmm. In addition to all of the many hats you wear as educator, as social emotional learning coordinator, you also coach parents, particularly of teens, to help guide them in how to communicate more effectively with their children. Mm-hmm. We are at a moment of, and I can say this as a mother of two, acute stress for parents. I cannot imagine a more challenging time to be a parent. With students learning at home and spending more time at home and parents spending more time at home, parents are having to also play a larger role in supporting the social emotional development of their children. In your view, how has parenting shifted from one generation to the next? And what implications does that change have on children? And what does that mean for social emotional learning? Okay, that was a lot of questions. So let me start. <laughs> uh, with parenting, you are right. I'm a, um, I'm a parent of a actually going into to fifth grade, and during the beginning of the pandemic, I my my anxiety was very high. My stress level was very high. She was stressed out, and I always felt like I was in a state of failing either failing her as a parent or failing my students as their teacher. And I just could not find that, that balance. And I would yell at her, you know, like just because she didn't know how to open a Google doc. <laughs> and then I would like be mad at my students for emailing me a question because I was trying to help my daughter and it was just not, it is not working. So I definitely agree with you that this is the most challenging time to be a parent, um, at least in our lifetime in the 20th, 21st mm-hmm. century. I can't imagine Um, you know, the dual roles that all parents are playing. And I think we went from where parents kind of like teachers did their thing and parents did their own thing and was very separate to we kind of then crossed the line in the 90s and early 2000s where it became, you know, the 
the stereotypical helicopter parent. And then there was the lawnmower parent. <laughs> it was like the parent <laughs> that just wanted to be the, you know, the friend of the student. And I think parents now are like realizing I, I kind of, I got to be all of those things in moderation. And I think the biggest thing that um, I had to learn through this and my daughter had to learn is to be gentle with yourself. Mm -hmm. And when I screwed up with her, which I did, yeah, I would yell at her, you know, I'm, I'm in a go-go mate. Why are you bothering me? I'd go apologize to her. I'd say to her, I shouldn't have said that to you. I apologize. I was feeling very stressed. Um, and I took it out on you. And she'd be like, it's okay, mommy. Like, you know, and she would like forgive me so easily. Um, or, or, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, I could tell that you were anxious about uh, handing in, you didn't know how to hand something in. And your teacher said it had to be in by three o'clock. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm sorry that I wasn't there to help you. Let's, let's set up a schedule that, I, you know, between two and two ten, I will check in with you and I won't schedule any meetings, you know? So it was really, um, you know, we kind of had to do it mutually. And I, I get that she's a little older, so you could do that. But if you have younger, like toddlers, I have, you know, some colleagues who are toddlers. And honestly, I was like, you're super people <laughs> to be able to handle toddlers and your job. And I just said, be gentle, like recognize mm -hmm. you're not going to be perfect and they're not going to be perfect. And that's okay. You're doing the best you can. And that's something I try to instill in my students and myself and my daughter is the two questions I always ask her when, you know, she has something to do, a project, a test is, did we prepare? Meaning like, did you study? Did you do the homework? Whatever. And did you do your best? Okay, if we answered yes to both of those questions, then whatever the grade is, we're going to deal with it because there was nothing else you could have done. If those two, if you tried your best and we prepared, then we're good. Um, and just recognizing that you need to be gentle with yourself, with your child, and also set some boundaries, set some guidelines for you for work, um, as well as like for parenting. You can't be a full-time quote unquote teacher with your child when you're at home and you're expected to do your professional duties. So again, if they're school aged and they can read a clock, telling them this time, you really can't bother me unless you're bleeding. <laughs> you know, it's sort of brown rule. Like, you need a drink, I don't care. No, you wouldn't say that. But it's like, I set you up over there, there's your sippy cup, there's your snack, there's your uh -huh. book. Like, between this time and the clock, mommy needs you to be over there. <laughs> yep, you know? yep. um, I'm laughing really hard because I am the parent of two toddlers. So oh, God bless. <laughs> Yes. Um, so, and setting boundaries for yourself, like, okay, I'm not going to go online at eight after I put, you know, you put your kids to bed and you're like, oh, let me catch up with some work emails. Cause then you get sucked into the vortex of work again. And then you're up and you're thinking, and then you're not getting a good night's sleep and you're not practicing self-care. And in this age, self-care is no longer a luxury. It's not, mm -hmm. I, it's just, I just gave, I just did a blog post on this for education first, where for teachers, for parents, this isn't about going to the spa or taking a day off to go golfing. This is like, I just need five minutes in the bathroom by myself. And I may not be going yeah. to the bathroom. I just yeah. need five minutes by yeah. myself. <laughs> uh, and honoring that. Silence. Yes. <laughs> it is Silence. golden. It is golden. So just, you know, being aware that everyone is in this predicament and realizing that you're not alone and leaning on your support group. Um, you know, just trying to reframe that, you know, it takes practice. But if we all did that, we put a little less pressure on ourselves and our students and our own children um, and it'll be better, but it's, it's a daily, it's a daily struggle. Even for someone like me who reads all of the research and I really mm -hmm. enjoy it. I have yeah. to remind myself, like, I'm not going to get to that today and that's okay. 
I got yeah. to what's important. I'm grateful for the fact that I made contact with my students today and they were all okay. And that mm-hmm. my daughter was able to do that assignment by herself when yesterday she didn't know how to do that assignment. You know, taking those small victories as opposed to looking for those big milestones. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at the, the little steps you take as opposed to, you know, how far you still have to go. And remembering that in your daily life is, is important. I don't think we can hear that enough right now. I don't think we can hear that enough. For those people who say that social emotional learning belongs in the home, that it's a parent's responsibility, what would you say to those people, again, coming from your position as social emotional learning coordinator for district, and how can we better provide social emotional learning at school and at home in a connected, supported way? Well, I think being human trumps being a teacher or a parent or any of our other hats that we wear. So just kind of remembering that uh, first and the idea that it takes a village. And I know, again, I'm using a lot of cliches, but cliches are cliche for a reason. They usually exist because it's true. (laughs) Um, And the way I came back at teachers who said that to me, like, that's not my job. That's the parent's job. And I'm like, okay, you spend six hours with these kids. So now at the high school level, we spend 80 minutes because we're in a block. But if you're in elementary or middle school, you tend to spend a a good deal of time, more time than a parent spends with their child during the school day. All right. So they're working. They may not get home to four or five o'clock. They've spent six to eight hours in a school building. How are we not helping them? Why not as a parent? Why not? Why wouldn't I want another adult influencing my child in a positive way and helping me out? You know, looking at it as we spend more time, there was a study that came out, I want to say it was 2016 or 2017, that uh, parents of teens, now this was more for my focus area, spent on average only 40 minutes a day with their child. Mm-hmm. 40 minutes a day. So that means you, you, as a teacher, let's say you teach in a traditional school schedule, you're spending the same amount of time as a parent is with the teen. So how is it not part of your responsibility to instill some of these uh, strategies and, you know, and kind of working with the child and making that connection? You know, with parents between taking them to soccer practice or ballet or, you know, your own work functions or the kid having, maybe it's not even you taking them. Maybe they're, they're in extracurriculars or they're doing their own thing. You're not spending quality time with them. And I'm not, there's no blame or shame in any of that. They need the the socialization and and all of that. But then they're not getting the one-on-one anymore. Our lives have become very hectic and scheduled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trying to, you know, keep the um, quality time, even if it is 40 minutes, make it a good 40 minutes. Don't have your phones. Don't be, uh, uh, you know, watching Netflix together. You know, do something where you're just, you know, talking with your kid back and forth and let them talk about whatever. Let them talk about Fortnite for 40 minutes. (laughs) So again, you know, you're hearing what they're into and what they're doing. um, And they're, you know, they're realizing you're listening to them. Because isn't that half the battle in the world where we don't listen to each other enough? We're waiting. We react as opposed to respond. We're waiting to say what we want to say as opposed to actually listening to what the other person is saying and then taking a moment and then responding. And when you put it out to parents and to teachers that way and to students, they're kind of of like, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. I'm like, yeah. So let's start with that. Like, you know, that foundation and, and move on from there. Um, and there's still some teachers who are resistant, but they do see the idea that like, well, I am an adult in their life. So do I want to be a good role model or do I, I not? 
And that's really, it's that simple of a choice. And again, I tell the teachers that are a little more uncomfortable with the emotional aspect of it is you don't have to give them all the, the mushy feelings, you know, uh, you know, the, the touch and the, and the, you know, how are you feeling deeply today? You could just be like, you know what? I really like that shirt on you. That's a great Mm -hmm. color for you. Or, Hey, I didn't know you were a Yankees fan. You know, who's your favorite player? Just engaging them at whatever level you're comfortable with is, you know, a way of connecting. And you don't have to take on that parent role. It's just saying like, hey, I'm an adult in your life. And if you need some support, I'm here. I have a little bit more wisdom because I've lived a little longer than you and I could possibly help you. I don't have all the answers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if, yeah. you know, when you tell kids that at any level, they usually appreciate it. Like my daughter, like when I say, I'm like, I really don't know. And she's like, is this something I can Google? <laughs> and sometimes the answer is yes. And then sometimes the answer is no. I'm like, no, I've lived 42 years is, and I still don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> we'll work on it together. And she's like, okay. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that self-care is really non-negotiable right now for both educators and parents. There is so much that you do, Christy, in so many aspects of your life. What do you do to practice your own social emotional wellness? How do you stay socially and emotionally well every day? Uh, it is. That's a challenge. I, I meditate. Uh, that's really my my focal point is I um, will do when I'm really in a hectic state of mind and I can't still my mind enough. I'll do a guided meditation because I can follow along with the, the words that are being said and kind of just get myself in that zone. When I'm uh, in a better place, I can do it in silence. I usually will have candles. I may have some music, but I make a, a space for myself um, in my room or, you know, if I'm not at home, I'll do it in my car. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, I do it because yeah. it really centers me and it calms me. Um, and that's how I kind of ground myself to remember what's important and to kind of focus on the things that I should be grateful. Well, not should. I am grateful for, um, and kind of give myself that time to reset. And I do that with my daughter as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes she'll come in and she'll realize what I'm doing. And like, she, now she knows from toddler age, she knew like, oh, mommy's sitting on the floor. She's not going to uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah. like that, that was her clue. When mommy's sitting yeah. on the floor in her, in her bedroom, she's not going to want to watch Sesame Street. Night. <laughs> yeah. So that, that yeah. worked. Um, and you know, to be honest, you know, I, I dealt with the reason why I got into meditation was to help with my anxiety. I had a great deal of anxiety, uh, with always wanting to be a perfectionist, to be honest. I always felt like I had to, if I did something, I had to be really good at it, like the best at it, or what was the point of doing it? And I, I'm a recovering perfectionist now, as I like to say, (laughs) um, I've done a lot of work where it's kind of like, ah, that's good enough. That's the best that I could do today. And it really is like, this is, was my state of mind. I gave the best that I could and I'm going to walk away and I, you know, to, you know, I, I can save it for tomorrow. I can figure out the rest tomorrow and being a little more forgiving of myself. But it is something that I do daily that I find really helps me and just kind of taking a moment to breathe. I never realized how important breath is, um, mm-hmm. you know, and when I started yoga, you know, and they were like, you're not breathing. I'm like, yes, I am. And she's like, if you were breathing properly, you'd be able to stay in that pose. I'm like, fine. And then she teach me how to breathe. I was like, oh, I really wasn't breathing yeah. <laughs> and yeah. learning that, um, and teaching mm-hmm. my students that, and my daughter, you know, you know, just mm-hmm. basic breath work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it makes a huge difference. So even if you're not into meditating, just doing mm-hmm. mindfulness, uh, just doing, you know, whatever it is, taking a, a bath, 
taking a shower, you know, and just letting Mm -hmm. the water, just like feeling the water, like just let yourself be immersed with your senses. That's what I like to do every day. Like I, water for me is like my, that's my home. That's where I like the ocean, uh, anything lakes. But so when I shower, I get my best ideas. So sometimes I'll just stand there. I'm like, okay, I'm okay. Like feel Mm -hmm. that Uh, it's, you know, it feels nice just to be present in the moment. So you just kind of finding your thing for self-care. It's not, it's not prescriptive. It's not like, okay, Sarah, you must meditate and you must do yoga if you want to say you're practicing self-care. Self-care mm-hmm. could be a hobby, you know, it could be knitting, it could be a board game, a crossword puzzle, uh, it could be taking a nap. Uh, you know, taking a shower, taking a walk, spending time in nature. It could be connecting with someone you haven't talked to, you know, even if it is on social media, like even if it's on Facebook Messenger, because people are like, oh, if I'm doing practicing self-care, I shouldn't be on technology. I'm like, that's not true. Like, you know, if you want to call someone, technically you're using technology. So call mm-hmm. someone, just mm-hmm. connect. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, you want to uh, look, think the way I, I view it as leaning in, there's self-care strategies where you lean in, and there's self-care strategies that you lean out. When you're leaning in, you're doing something that's very personal for you, uh, like focusing on the breath, journaling, meditating, yoga. When you're leaning out, you're looking more to escape for a little bit. Like, okay, I am going to watch this stupid Tiger King show on Netflix because everybody <laughs> else is watching it. And it's not going to enrich my life at all. And that's okay. You know? So again, sometimes you just need to like shut everything down and do something mindlessly that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Play play that game on, you know, play, you know, words with friends, you know, play, right. you know, uh, Candy Crush. If that's going to chill you out for a couple minutes. So whatever you need in that moment and beginning to recognize that, should I be leaning into this or do I just need to lean out? Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I, personally I've been working on the past year. And I started with my, my students on that as well. Tell us before we close, tell us about your children's book. Okay. My children's book is basically um, my, it's a collection of short stories. It's for, made for middle grade that it takes on two siblings that are basically the reincarnation of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. So I call them Emmy and Henry. And they basically are going through a life where they recognize that there's a different way to live, that they recognize the hecticness or what's going on in the world. And they bring that inner wisdom that I think all of our inner child's you know, children have that we forget as we get older because we get strapped on with responsibilities and burdens and just, you know, our our own minds, our own ego, kind of going back to that natural, like, huh, let's take a moment and observe this. And is this really where I want to be? So it's putting them in those little adventures and then reflecting. And usually they have a piece, uh, I've been creating some STEM activities to go along with it. So like when this court, when the, the short story had to do with like science, I made sure I went to my science teachers and I said, is this a, 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 a theory that I could use in this story that makes sense? And they were like, yes. Okay. So then there was one with a health class. So I went to the phys ed teacher. I'm like, is this something that a student would learn in health class in, in middle school? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, okay. So I have to rethink that. <laughs> and then I do extension activities. So that's where I'm at working, you know, on that. So it's like a Walden 2.0. I don't, we were still playing with the title, but that's basically what the the line is about. Would you say that creative writing is a self-care social emotional strategy for you? Absolutely. Writing is just my go-to to, uh, you know, unleash whatever it is. I have like a, a, I call it a burn book, but it's not like the teen burn book. It's a burn <laughs> book where it's like, I don't want anybody to ever read it. It's just like, you know, I just putting pen to paper, I write anything out. And then sometimes I rip it out. Sometimes I burn it. Sometimes I'll leave it in the book, but I never read it again. It's not mm-hmm. meant for reflection. It's meant just to kind of uh, like brain dump, you know, unload and I don't unpack it. 
And then there's types of writing that I do when I'm feeling more contemplative or creative. And that's where the Henry and Emmy stories came out. And, you know, some of the other uh, personal essays that I've written have come out of, and that's more of a reflective practice for me. But yes, it's absolutely a self-care strategy for me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christy, for sharing your expertise and your experience with all of us. This was so interesting and so helpful to hear about your journey. Um, So thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your own classroom experience and your own experience as a parent and as a facilitator. Let's go ahead and uh, close with three intentional breaths, just like we opened with an opportunity to check in on our emotional state we'll close and what do you call it an optimistic optimistic closure closure? okay so i love that so let's do let's um guide ourselves in an optimistic closure so let's go ahead and just take this first breath for the power of social and emotional learning in strengthening ourselves and our communities so breath in and breath out Let's take this second breath. We've talked a lot about the importance of vulnerability and starting somewhere. So let's take this second breath for the power of vulnerability and the potential that that can unleash for us and our students. Breath in. Breath out. Let's take this third and final breath for ourselves, doing this difficult and important work. May our days be meaningful and productive and our nights peaceful. Breath in and breath out. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate being able to share everything with you and hear your vantage point as well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the SarahCast today. I loved spending this time with you. Before you go, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in. And breathe out. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find all of our episodes on movethisworld.com. The SarahCast, Conversations in Social-Emotional Learning, is produced by the Move This World Audio Network. Move This World supports social-emotional learning for students, their families, and their school communities through evidence-based curricula rooted in creative expression and movement. You can find additional resources to support SDL in your district, school, classroom, or home on our website, movethisworld.com. I'll see you next time.